Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom Hockaday, author of the book, University Technology Transfer, What It Is and How to Do It, which was published in April of this year by the Johns Hopkins University Press. From 2000 to 2016, Tom was a director of Oxford University Innovation, formerly known as ISIS Innovation, the technology transfer company at the University of Oxford. Prior to Oxford University Innovations, Tom was the head of technology transfer at the University of Bristol from 1993 to 2000. Prior to the University of Bristol, Tom worked at UCLI LTD, which was part of the University College London. Tom has a degree in geography from King's College London. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Tom. Lisa, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. I usually like to start these podcasts off by asking our guests if they could tell us a little bit about their background, specifically how your career began in tech transfer and how you ended up at Oxford University Innovation, which was called ISIS Innovation when you were there. Certainly. And like many things in life, it's probably more of an accident than a plan. Um, certainly for the case for people getting involved in technology transfer, you know, back in the, the late 80s and 90s. I think these days people probably plan to get into it, but it wasn't always the case back then. So I'd been working in the financial services sector for a while and not necessarily enjoying that so much and um, answered an ad and found myself working at uh, University College London um, in the centre of town. And they'd recently set up a tech transfer unit called UCLI, University College London Initiatives. And I worked there for a while and you know, found myself enjoying it, I suppose, as you know, a square peg in a square hole. Um, and from there, I moved to Bristol University in the west of England. And when I moved there, I was the first full-time person involved in technology transfer, you know, patenting, licensing, etc. Um, and by the end of the 1990s, we had a team of uh, seven people. Um, and I had the opportunity to move to Oxford. Um, and that was kind of an offer too good to turn down. Um, I was actually born in Oxford um, and uh, you know, had some connections with the university, although I hadn't studied there, um, and realized that the quality of the research that you're involved in transferring um, is actually really, really important and, and no better place to be than Oxford. So I moved there in uh, 2000 um, and you know, they already had quite an active program there, which had been set up by my predecessor, Tim Cook, um, and joined a team of, I think it was 15 or 16 people at the time. Um, 
and took over the leadership of that in 2006. Wow. And you were there a long time till 2016. And then you you left and then you decided you wanted to jump in and write a book, um, which it's it's amazingly de- detailed. It's, it's a great book. What was your motivation to, to write that book? I mean, during my time in, in Oxford, um, I talked to a couple of people about the possibilities of writing a book because we'd often sort of sat around and and asked ourselves, well, look, where, where's the book on this? You know, where's the official version? Um, and there wasn't one, as, as, as you say. Um, and so I found myself with a bit of time on my hands. Um, I'd actually been asked to write uh, a chapter of a sort of international uh, encyclopedia or compendium on technology transfer uh, by Ashley Stevens in Boston, who who many may know. Um, and so I set about writing a chapter on the UK during 2016. Um, and, you know, found myself getting on with that and quite quite enjoying it. The, that sort of international project um, fell by the wayside. But I thought, look, I've got about 10,000 words. What am I going to do? And, and so from there, having already written a few short pieces before, I started to to build the book. And I was spending quite a lot of time uh, on airplanes, um, the, so 2016, 2017, and that gave me a lot of time to think of the plan and the structure for it. Um, and once I settled on that, I started fitting in various <laughs> bits that I'd written before and, and uh, stitching it all together. So it was all sort of done by mid-late 2018. Um, And then I set about trying to find a publisher. And I know some people do it the other way around, but I I quite enjoyed the fact when I was writing it, I wasn't sort of under obligation to deliver. It was a sort of self-imposed, self-inflicted project. Um, And it was wonderful when in late uh, 2018, uh, Johns Hopkins University Press um, said yes, they'd they'd like to publish it, and and here we are now. Yeah, it's incredible the amount of detail in that book, and and I highly encourage people to to pick up a copy because there's a lot of really valuable information. And and I think given the amount of detail, it, it doesn't seem to me like two years. It's a long time, but for the amount of detail and effort that is evident in this book, it it doesn't seem like it took you uh, that long to do. Really, I mean, it, it's always on and off. Um, I mean, I was doing other things at the time. Um, and writing comes and goes, as as you know. Um, the best bit of advice I remember reading was that, you know, along the lines that no amount of time wandering around the garden thinking about what you're going to write actually puts words on the page. So you just got to sit in your chair get your pen and paper out or obviously a laptop these days and you've just got to write stuff. Uh, yeah, it doesn't magically just appear in your head. You got to yeah. actually force it out of your brain and on onto a page, as they say. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then having, you know, with Johns Hopkins, who who were wonderful, having, you know, having an editor um, really helped give it some, some shape and uh, uh, smooth out the rough bits. Well, in the book, one of the chapters I found particularly interesting because I, I like history is uh, the chapter on the history of tech transfer in the UK and the US. And I know a lot of our listeners to this podcast are very familiar with the history of tech tra- transfer in the US. I think a lot of them would find it interesting if you could tell us a little bit about the history of tech transfer in the UK. Certainly, certainly. And 
I mean, the the way I tell the story in the book, um, and, and by the way, I, I enjoyed the history as well. I didn't necessarily uh, expect that I would, but I found myself sort of getting into it. Um, the way I tell the story in the book is, is sort of from the Second World War onwards, um, around sort of two key events, um, the formation of a sort of national agency, the National Research and Development Corporation, which was tasked in 1948, 1949 to um, develop and exploit research coming out of publicly funded uh, universities and, and research institutes. Um, and you know, then also the episode around monoclonal antibodies in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And what struck me was that, that both of both of those sort of episodes, both of those events seemed to be built around, you know, failure or, or mistakes. And I'm not actually sure that's the right way to, to look at it. Um, but you know, the story of the creation of the NRDC, National Research and Development Corporation, which was officially formed in 1948 but got started in 1949, was you know very much in in the post-war um, uh, you know, feeling of the of, of the day, and you know part of the story was that the development of penicillin, uh, which had taken place in in London and then in in Oxford. Um, was, you know, potentially a missed opportunity for British industry because what um, happened, and there's a far more detailed write-ups uh, on this than, than in my book, um, but essentially the, the commercial development of penicillin found its way across the Atlantic and took place in the US rather than the UK. But of course, it had been uh, developed, invented and, and proven in, in the UK. Um, so I think there was a feeling that you know, post-war, the UK needed to get better at um, the use and commercial development of research that that it was doing and and that the government was was funding. Um, and you know, a key point with both penicillin and monoclonal antibodies is that sort of irrespective of who made what money where. Um, you know, these are both great examples of British science doing good stuff and and you know helping humanity in in incredible ways, and and you know, so early on in the whole history of of the development of this activity, you see this tension between um, you know do, doing good and doing well, you know making money, um, but also providing university research results to benefit society. So there was this feeling anyway that that. Pelicinin was a missed opportunity for British industry, um, developed in the US. Um, we need to do better. And of course, penicillin wasn't the only example. It wasn't the only driver, but it was part of it. And so the National Research and Development Corporation was set up. It was tasked with not only looking at research results from UK universities, but UK government departments, etc. Et as well. Um, and, you know, 19... Late 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, it was doing okay. It was it was doing its thing, with probably more success in the government department research activities than in the universities. And there's a fairly sort of simple reason for this, I think, which is that 
you know, NRDC was a government agency in the centre of London, and universities are dispersed across the country and don't necessarily, well, certainly don't see themselves as as, as publicly owned institutions or government institutions. Um, and so, come the uh, late seventies with the development of monoclonal antibodies in Cambridge in, in the UK, um, the uh, again there was a a feeling that the Medical Research Council at the time missed the opportunity to file patents on that technology. Now, you know, was was it a missed opportunity? Where might one seek to sort of pinpoint the, the, the real decisions that we're taking? I think a lot of it was just the sheer culture of university researchers at the time and scientists you know patenting wasn't a big part of the story then um maybe there was an opportunity missed by the you know the medical research council to look at it but again what was the culture in that organization um what was the communication like between the medical research council and the nrdc the national research and development corporation um but nevertheless the perception was as that monoclonal antibody technology got developed and um, follow-on patents filed elsewhere, was this was another missed opportunity for British industry to build upon British science. Um, and so in 1985, um, so you know all these things take a, a few years, but in the light of the missed opportunity, so-called, of monoclonal antibodies, um, there was a big change. And, and NRDC, which had by then being renamed British Technology Group, or BTG, um, they, uh, th there was a big change, which meant that rather than BTG having first rights to commercialize publicly funded research from universities, um, that would be transferred across to the university. So the university itself um, could start building a tech transfer program. And so, you know, insofar as as the UK has an equivalent of the the Bayh-Dole Act, um, it's very clear it was the 14th of May 1985 um, when legislation was passed which transferred uh, the opportunity to commercialise university research results from the central government to the universities. That's a really interesting story, and it sounded like maybe in the UK they they had so-called we like to say in the US maybe two strikes. You don't want a third strike and strike out. That uh, they felt like it was time time after the monoclonal antibodies to to modernize and and let the universities run with their technology. At the beginning of your book, you talk about two big questions for universities and tech transfer offices. These questions are the what, then how, namely encouraging a university first to consider what it wants to achieve before diving into the mechanics of the technology transfer support functions. And then asking the question, are you helping researchers who want help to commercialize the results of their research? Can you talk in more detail about these questions and why you think that these are so important for both universities and their technology transfer offices? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, the first one, the sort of the what, then how, is a, a sort of general principle in life, I think, and, and organizations should probably apply this to everything they try to do. You know, what are we trying to achieve? What's What are our objectives before we decide how to go about doing it? Um, but I noticed that in particular with tech transfer. Um, and I think part of this is the, uh, the relationship between the 
the TTO, the leadership of the TTO, and the leadership of the university. You know, are what we call, you know, vice chancellors, pro-vice chancellors, are they talking enough to the heads of the tech transfer and the governing boards of the tech transfer offices? Um, because the TTO needs to know what does the university want to achieve from its activities. Um, and very often you see university uh, people getting frustrated by the tech transfer program for one reason or another um, and saying, OK, look, how can we how can we improve this? How can we change this? Um, and the thing to do is to step back and saying, OK, university, collectively, what do we want to achieve? Is this program about transferring as much technology as we possibly can? Are we interested in the amount of money that we make? How are we going to finance this thing? Are we going to focus on some research disciplines rather than others? Um, and all sorts of questions about the fundamental objectives, which, which often are intimately tied in to the, the, the financial model. Um, okay, well, given all of that, this is how we can go about doing it. And the financial model is so important because if a university can afford to take a long-term view, then the TTO can adopt what I would consider to be sensible approaches in terms of you know, taking a long-term view, recognizing um, that you need to you know, invest in your patent positions and hold them for a long time because by definition, these are early stage opportunities and industry needs to, to take them on. And this all takes a, a long time. If the TTO is tasked with making a financial return quickly, then it takes a completely different approach. It just tries to pick a few, you know, early um, wins, sell them for as much as it needs, and, and on we go. So I think this relationship between objectives and, and, and money and financing is is absolutely fascinating and key. So my, my sort of advice to any TTO people is, you know, talk to the university, by which I mean the university leadership, um, and try to identify who in the university um, can really help to determine and then present what the university's objectives are. And, and then on, on, on the second one, which in a way I almost think is, is, is more important, um, are we helping researchers who want help to commercialize the results of their research? And, you know, the key word here is, is help. Um, and the key point is that it's the researchers that get to decide what help is. Um, and the, it's the whole piece about the TTO recognizing that it exists to support university activity. It exists to help the university, but to help researchers in the university, and as we all know, you know this, um, the the project start, the process starts with a researcher deciding to contact the TTO. Now that might be as a result of the TTO doing lots of internal marketing activity and promoting itself, and um, you know even asking researchers, you know, if you got anything you're interested in commercializing. Um, but it's a voluntary activity by the researcher. That's the point. Um, and so they decide to come along to the TTO and the TTO has to help them. Um, and again, as we all know, it's not about the TTO taking this from the researcher and doing something with it. It's about working in collaboration uh, with the researchers and doing something together. Um, 
So, you know, helping researchers and, you know, thinking about TT, TT activity, tech transfer offices as a support function and that sort of culture of are we helping researchers do something they want to do? And, um, you know, we when we got when we found ourselves in, in Oxford dealing with some challenges or some issues inside the university, we'd with projects we were managing, we'd go back to this question. You know, we'd sometimes we'd ask the researcher directly, look, are we helping you do something you want to do? Um, and if you sort of establish those those basics, sometimes the research would say, well, look, that's a good point. I've had enough of this. You know, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> And, yeah, and so we say that's fine. That's absolutely no problem. If you're out, we're out. We'll move on. Um, and you know, it's it's a it's a state of mind for the TTO. Is um, are we helping? And where I've seen things go wrong, I would characterize it as where the TTO gets slightly ahead of itself um, and kind of forgets <laughs> forgets why it's that really there. And I think that's a good segue to talking about technology transfer being difficult. And that's a point you make in the book. And you talk about the fact that fundamentally it's difficult because people in universities are very different from people in business. They have different backgrounds, different experiences, different motivations, personalities, and objectives. You note that people don't naturally trust each other. And, and that's really very true They they because they don't know each other, right? And And you talk about that when they get to know each other, they build trust, and then some of the prejudices and, and some of the difficulties start to evaporate. I'd be interested in knowing if you could tell us what you and your colleagues did at Oxford to overcome or resolve some of these difficulties and what suggestions you would have for other tech transfer offices to make um, tech transfer itself less difficult. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think the point about people not naturally trusting each other you know, I don't want to sound sort of miserable and condemn humanity, but I think no. it's a sort of it's it's a sort of tribal thing. I mean, if if you're you know if you come across somebody from your tribe, you probably do trust them, but if they're from another tribe, you probably don't. And so, you know, w- within the university community, people generally trust each other. Um, but but what we did, I mean, I think there's 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 two answers to specific answers to your question. I mean. One was the people that we employed in the tech transfer office, um, and the other one is about networking. Um, so, in terms of the people that we employed, we, we recognised that that we were sitting between the university researchers and the industry people, and um, we know there's huge diversity in university researchers, and there's equally huge diversity in industry people, um, and it sort of includes business, uh, in investment, financiers, government types as well. So, so you know, far from a uh, a, a sort of homogenous group of people, obviously. Um, but what we needed was we needed people who could translate. Um, and I think that metaphor of transla- you know, language translation is highly relevant because we needed to translate things from the language and culture of universities into the language and culture of business and investors and vice versa. So what we did is we employed people who had lived in you know the university lab, and our sort of proxy for that was: did they have a PhD? 
because if you've got a PhD, you've, you've you know, lived in a lab for a few years, one way or another. Um, so you understand the culture, you understand, you know, how things operate, um, what's important, what people are trying to achieve, what's difficult, etc. Um, and, you know, the, the primacy of publications, collaborative research, winning research funding, you, you understand that world and you're sympathetic to it. But also these people would have done their PhD and then left the university, gone out into industry, business, finance, um, and spend a few years there uh, where they understood, okay, so this is a bit different. <laughs> um, but you understand the motivations, the, 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 the culture, so that you can help one of these groups understand what the other one possibly really means when they say something that could be a little bit antagonistic, but also what we need to offer to the other group for them to become interested. Um, so it was it was identifying the sort of requirements of the people and then finding the good people. Um, and and this is a job that, you know, if if it fits, if it works for you, it's one of the best jobs you can possibly get because you spend time with an incredible range and variety of brilliant scientists absolutely and you get to know so much about different businesses industry investors you know challenges um and the new technologies so so you know if it, if it fits it's perfect and i think that's why actually a lot of people you know enter this tech transfer world and stay for a long time it seems to me because if, if it works it, it's just it's just great so so one was people um and the other was you know what you these days is networking um which i i think um just involves you know talking to lots of people and um so we would do a lot of internal what we call internal marketing within the university promoting our activities so that you know the the university researchers felt comfortable with us even though we were part of the same organization um but also did lots of networking outside in industry and we uh, set up um, well before my time something called the Oxford Innovation Society, which was hugely effective at bringing people together from all walks of life, um, both inside the university and outside. Um, and you know, you 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 give them a drink, you give them some food, and you let them get on with it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yep. Those are always so, good combinations. They they seem to work well. Yes. They work well, and and gradually, if the same people come to the same events time after time, they get to know each other. The you know those sort of you know the walls come right down, the trust builds, and people start doing stuff together. Yeah, I think that's great, great advice. In the book, you talk about the structure of university tech transfer offices, namely the decision process involved in determining whether they should be part of the university's administration or kept as a separate company. Can you talk about what the structure looks like for tech transfer offices in the UK and how that differs from the structure of the tech transfer offices in the US? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think there is a difference here um, in the in the US, as you know, as far as I'm aware, tech transfer offices are uh, a part of the administration yes. of the university. Um, in the UK, that's the case for the vast majority, but not all. And um, the leading research universities in the UK uh, have, uh, over the last you know, 20, 25 years, um, set up wholly owned subsidiary companies to, to be their 
TTO to be their tech transfer office. Um, and you know, this attracts a lot of attention. Um, from a, a sort of numbers point of view, the vast majority of TTOs in the UK universities are administrative units within the administration administration of the university, without without question. Um, but you know, for Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, Imperial, and others, um, but a small number of others, it's a company, and this you know pr- 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 promotes quite a lot of debate. I think the initial reasons for these being set up as companies were really actually to do with risk management. Um, And I I think certainly from a a UK, from an Oxford point of view, you know, when you look back at the the original files and the papers, um, there was a feeling that, you know, this was the mid 80s. Look, we're we're embarking on an activity which is a bit new and different for us. Um, It's a bit commercial. If it goes wrong, we may want to shut this down and distance ourselves from it. What better than a limited liability company? Um, now, that was perhaps the early thinking, but the thinking obviously evolved, and the rationale for having a wholly owned subsidiary company, I think, is very strong beyond that. If you have a high volume of research, high volume of high quality research, and a university that's willing to invest in all the tech transfer um, activities of patenting and building a team and, and, and marketing, because I think you can build the culture in the TTO that is business focused and commercially focused with the sorts of people I was talking about. And um, as long as you get the governance right, and that's a really key point, um, if you get so long as you manage the governance such that the university is comfortable with this commercial entity, which it owns, as a matter of fact, um, then the TTO can present itself to business as a far more business thinking and business facing and business focused organization. And I think that works with people in industry, of course, but also investors um, and entrepreneurs who are getting involved in, in spin out companies. So I think the advantages are, are very clear. The key sort of risk to manage for is the communication back to your university. Yeah, I would think that's the key. And how did that work at Oxford? So, I mean, we we had a a, a board. So the company had a board okay. of directors, um, and you know that's the key thing about the governance. Probably is the people. Um, we would have a majority of university people on that board. Interestingly, the chairman. Chairperson was not a university person because we wanted to give it um, that commercial focus. But the majority was university. And bear in mind, the university owned this thing. Um, so if 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 things needed sorting out, the university just could sort it out. Um, but other things we did. So our payroll, for example, was managed through the university payroll. So um, if anybody, you know, if we started paying ourselves too much, they they, they knew they, <laughs> they could jumped notice. in. Yes, um, and our, our legal services were managed by the university's legal services office. I mean, we had our own in-house lawyer, but they were part of the university team. So I think it was quite a nice balance of of you know, be commercial, do commercial stuff, um, but you know, recognize that you're owned by the university, and you know, we we want to collaborate obviously intimately. Wow, that's really interesting. 
And actually, speaking of interesting, in your chapter that's entitled Going to the Market, you you begin this particular chapter with a really cute poem. Um, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to leave something for for our listeners to, to read. But it's about a little piggy going to market who did an online search and then got a licensing deal. And another little piggy who didn't get a licensing deal, who cried, wah, wah, wah all the way to the dean's office. So, um, and you use this poem in this particular chapter to introduce a discussion on the differences between spinouts and licensing university tech transfer. And you go through a lot of detail comparing the two and weighing the positives and the negatives, how to decide key terms, term sheets, things like that. And what's interesting is part of the discussion, you talk about this easy access IP, which was something that came out of the University of Glasgow. For those who aren't familiar with Easy Access IP, can you tell us how it got its start and the impact that it's had on tech transfer in the UK? Of, of course. And, and just before that, I mean, I don't think we want to read too much or try to, to transfer too much from that little nursery rhyme into the theory <laughs> and structure. I thought it was cute. Transfer. But yeah, yeah, um, and it is the point that that you've got to you've got to go to market. You know, I mean, you've got to go to market. Um, and in a way, when I talk about the spinouts and and licensing, um, that's the point. It's it's not always the university or the researchers or the scientists that decide. It's the market that decides uh, more often than not. Um, but but onto your point about your question about easy access IP. Yeah, I mean, I think this is. Started in 2010, um, and what I call in the book sort of the impact debate had started in the UK a little bit before that, um, and I think was born from this whole subject of, um, you know, what, how do we transfer more technology so that we can meet the objective of of um, creating impact and benefit from university research and and the idea was well look how about we just give some of it away for free and and you know this was radical this was kind of like a radical idea um and i think like a lot of radical ideas it sort of shocked people to to a certain extent um and you know you you can certainly um see the drawbacks and difficulties of it but what i think it did it got people thinking well hang on how if we're going to give some away for free how do we decide which we give away for free and which we don't um and is there some sort of categorization here um but it really questioned the overall objective what are we trying to achieve to what extent is it about the money um and why don't we just make this whole thing easier um, so let's make industry's access to our IP easier, easy access IP. Um, and I think, you know, we, we know, and I certainly know this is the case in, in the States as, as well as elsewhere, you know, this was part of a conversation about putting on sort of click-through licenses, standardization of terms for certain types of, of technology to make the whole transactional um, uh, business e easier you know, the sort of friction of the transaction to lower that as much as possible. So as well as it being for free, it was on very simple standard terms and it shook things up. And, and in a way with, with hindsight, that's why I like it. Um, at the time, I didn't really get it. I didn't sure. see this. I didn't really understand how, how's this going to work? Why are we doing this? 
But with hindsight, I think it was quite a key moment, actually. Very interesting. Yeah, it, I, it really caught my attention in the book. I thought it was kind of a radical idea at, at that time, which you've, you've now explained that it, it really was. And then moving on to the chapter that's entitled Minding the Gap, uh, here you talk about raising money for these spin-out companies and the role of university tech transfer offices to cultivate networks of potential investors and managers. And you talk about the rise in the last 20 years of a large number of university venture funds. Can you talk about the rise of the university venture fund at Oxford and where that stands today? I mean, it, it's an amazing story. And I mean, sort of to, 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 to jump to the end, um, now in in Oxford, there is an organization called Oxford Sciences Innovation, which is managing a 600 plus million pound uh, pot of money, um, which exists solely to invest in early stage technologies from the University of Oxford and, and develop them into, into strong spin out companies. Um, but it all started uh, you know, back in the late 90s. Um, the university itself had decided to put a little pot of money up to um, you know, invest and support strong projects. Uh, and then in 1999, um, the UK government came up with a, a program called the University Challenge Seed Fund Program. And this was the start of a huge change and development, you know, positive for, in the UK. And I think that scheme these days, when I talk to people around the world, often the, the conversation goes back to, well, in 1999, the UK government, University Challenge Seed Fund, et cetera, et cetera, because what they did is they provided a pot of money. So it was the UK government plus the Wellcome Trust put together a pot of money, and they would give you three for every one the university put up um, to create a seed fund. So Oxford put up a million pounds, won three million pounds, had a four million pound fund, which in, in today's language sort of existed to do two things proof of concept support for projects before a deal was done and, and seed investment in the first round of a new spin-out company. Um, and what that did, I mean, it provided some money, but also it brought these two communities together. So it brought the tech yep. transfer people and the, the money management people together. Um, you know, there was a bit of heat and dust and, and, and friction, but um, it it really was the start of these two communities getting to know each other better and, and understanding each other. And, you know, over those 20, well, 15 years, because because um, Oxford Sciences Innovation started in 2015 with a £300 million fund, um, it's not actually technically, a, you know, a fund. It's a, it's a company which has raised that money and is investing off its balance sheet. But now £600 million, it's invested about £100 million, um, and the effect it's had is transformational because when I was running Oxford University Innovation, the TTO in Oxford, we were doing six or seven new spin-out companies a year. And that pot of money has acted as a huge sort of magnet to draw out other opportunities. And I think it averages about 20 new companies a year now. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, as with many things, it's, it's not always about the money. Um, the the people who invested in OSI had amazing networks. So, you know, with that money comes routes through to market with some of the largest, most powerful companies in the world, you know, in, in investment from 
corporate venture organizations with some of the biggest organizations in the world. So amazing network. And also, I mean, very recently, I think just the last few weeks, they've announced that um, they're taking over management of a building to provide you know, facilities uh, for some of the bioscience companies that are coming out of the university. So, so they're taking a, a very sort of you know, broad look at what do we need to do to help commercialize you know results coming out of oxford um so that they reach the market and help people and make lots of money so i think this is a good segue into a topic you already mentioned you talked about impact and in the book you talk about the introduction of impact as a measure of university research excellence and how the 2014 research excellence framework also known as the ref changed the way universities in the uk thought and started to talk about tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit more about the REF and how it influenced this discussion and what it means for the future in the UK? The, the Research Excellence Framework, or, or the REF of 2014, um, was the latest in a exercise the UK government's carried out for, for quite a few decades in establishing what is the um, quality of research in every department in every university in the UK, and that links to the amount of central government funding that a university receives. Um, what was so different different about the 2014 Research Excellence Framework um, was that it introduced for the first time a, a measure of the impact of research. Um, so previous exercises, research assessment exercises, had looked at what you might call sort of conventional, traditional measures of research um, in terms of publications, citations, funding, etc. Um, but this introduced a measure of impact. And there was a huge question of, well, how do we measure uh, the impact that research has? Um, and the answer that the UK government came up with for um, the 2014 REF was, we, we're going to require universities to provide case studies of research projects that have had impact they must be backed up with sort of provable data about the nature of that impact um, and the, those case studies would be assessed by panels who would then you know score them and you know this was really important because um, it was the sort of implementation of a conversation that had started back in the mid 2000s when a report came out saying, um, okay, what is the benefit that the UK and society is getting from um, all of the publicly funded research? And there was an initial response from universities about how, you know, that's not really the point. You fund it, we do it, you know, end of. Um, but the government quite understandably pushed the point and said, well, you know, what's the impact of research? They framed this in what's the economic impact, which, you know, there was a negative reaction to that from universities. It's not just about economic impact, it's social, political, cultural impact, etc. Um, so universities began to recognize, as probably quite a lot of them individuals had for, for forever, which is that they're doing this for a reason. Um, you know, they're doing their research for a reason. Um, the, the ability to communicate the impact of research is really important. Um, so these case studies were a requirement of the 2014 REF. Um, and the reason that it sort of, it, it took effect was, you know, that, that it, it 
sort of bit was that the government tied the amount of money you were going to get to the quality of the the impact you could uh, describe. And so 20% of the points that were used to determine the ranking a department got and hence the amount of money it got from central government was tied to these impact case studies. So, So one of the great ironies in a way is that you know, everybody's talking about the impact beyond the money so that they can get more money. Uh, and it goes Jeez. round and round, as is so sort of often often the case. Um, but, but so the effect on tech transfer, uh, which is, is your question, um, was that initially universities looked to the TTO as the place to find these impact stories. And fantastic, j- just as you might expect. But then quite quickly, the universities realized that, well, what about the social science departments? What about the arts and humanities departments? And so, in fact, this concept of what is the impact of our research went way beyond what the TTO was engaged in and what the TTO was about. So the reason I think this is interesting for TTOs is the TTOs became a smaller part of a bigger conversation. and that has sort of knock-on effects for how the TTO is perceived within the universities, and maybe goes back to the point we started on uh, a while ago about you know the what, what are the objectives of this in an impact world? And you also talk about in the book about needing to be careful when we talk about impact and benefits um, that university research has on society. Um, what's your what's your thought on that? I think this is mainly about timescales, and and um, it's it's one thing to say you want research at universities to have impact. It's another to say you want it to have impact now, um, and you know so much of university research is done when the impact is unknown, not known. The, the eventual impact turns out to be quite different from what may have have um, been expected. And so it does go back to this fundamental point that that research is worth doing for its own sake. You know, it, it, asking the questions, pushing it, trying to find out how stuff works for the sake of it is really important because the benefits will come, but they may well not come for a very long time. Um, and so the risk with implementing a sort of impact uh, driver for all of your research activity is that if the timescales are too short, um, it it sort of pushes against doing fundamental, really fundamental early stage research. So, okay, if you're going to introduce impact for whatever set of reasons, um, make sure you don't have too great an adverse effect on fundamental research. And fundamental research only happens in universities. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. They're the only places left on the planet where that happens. Yep. At the end of the book, you talk about four forces at play that will lead to the disappearance, unfortunately, of some university tech transfer offices. And you say these forces are number one, impact, number two, research collaboration networks, number three, university venture funds, and number four, student entrepreneurship. Can you tell us what it is about each of these forces that you think will cause some tech transfer offices to disappear? And I'd be curious to know, when you wrote this in your book, it was pre-COVID, and how have these forces or 
have these forces changed in view of this current pandemic that we're in right now? Yeah, sure. And um, I've been saying that, as I do in the book, saying that I think some tech transfer offices with, will close. Um, you know, maybe overstating it, but I actually don't think so. And and the activity may continue, but in a different form. And so the the tech transfer office, um, you know, will become less independent and more dependent upon other activities in the university. So I think Im- impact um, we've we've talked about impact is a university wide activity. The tech transfer office plays a small part in delivering impact for from research for the university. And so you could imagine a TTO being absorbed into an impact office um, because the university is focused on impact um, for the reasons we've we've talked about. TTO is a small part of that. I think the risk there is that the university will lose this really special set of skills that TTOs have, which is the, the blend of the commercial focus, the commercial deal-making acumen um, with understanding the university environment. So I mean I think it's a it's a mistake to lose your TTO. Um, the second the second one, research collaboration networks, um, you know, TTOs are able to transfer the results of research where the, where they're free to do so, where the university owns the research results and it hasn't been pre-sold one way or another. With more and more research being collaborative, with industry, um, it may be that the results of a greater proportion of the research are pre-sold, predetermined one way or another. Um, and so the TTO actually has far less um, of a supply of, of technologies and projects that it can you know, protect and transfer. Um, so that's what that one's about. Um, university venture funds, in a way, is coming at it from, from the other direction. Um, if your university has a tied fund, a tied investment fund of one sort or another, um, I think you can imagine a scenario in which that becomes, um, you know, the the main, the only channel through which things are commercialized, and so you wonder why the university has a TTO, and maybe all the university needs to do is patent stuff present it to the fund, and the fund is the one with the exciting job of deciding what to do and how to go about doing it. So so that's the risk there. Um, Student entrepreneurship. I mean, this is the simple fact that there's more students in most universities, there's more students than than, uh, academic researchers, probably in all universities, actually, maybe worth worth finding out. And and student entrepreneurship is this you know wonderful activity um, which has you know grown and grown and grown and still changing and growing in universities and you know, in a way you can say tech transfer has sort of grown up and matured student entrepreneurship in Oxford formally started you know in terms of the university providing support for it that started about 2000 so it's you know it's younger and it's more dynamic and it's more exciting and so you know and there's more students than researchers so maybe that will sort of grow as the key focus and the the TTO will lose some of its uh, appeal and attraction so so those are the things that i'm sort of putting out there as as um potential directions of travel um and then to come on to your point about 
COVID-19 and the, the current crisis. Um, I mean, so much has been said about the wonderful response from universities to this in terms of you know, technologies and people and advice and Absolutely. data analysis. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we know that. It's not for me to talk about that now. But um, the response of tech transfer offices has been you know, wonderful as well um, in the sense that TTOs were very quick. And this was the case in the USA with, with Autumn and with a group of leading universities and their technology access agreements, et cetera. Um, we're very quick to say, look, if we've got a technology and you can use it to address some feature of this um, uh, pandemic, um, you can have it for free. You know, the rise of the NERF, the non-exclusive royalty-free license. You know, if you're whilst you're using it to address the pandemic, uh, you don't need to pay for it. And that was wonderful and, and, and good stuff. Um, and just got me thinking about, you know, crisis, sort of which crisis, because it's great to respond to the COVID-19 global pandemic in that way. But last year, do you remember, there was a crisis called the climate change crisis. And, you know, guess what? It hasn't gone away. And so, um, if, as coming out of your university research, and almost all uni research universities will have this, if you've got a technology that somehow addresses a part of the climate change crisis, the climate crisis, well, hang on, can we have that for free as well? And this is a really important question for universities to have an answer to. And the, the point really is that you need an answer. You know, your answer can be, because if your answer is, gosh, we hadn't thought about that, you're going to look a little bit uh, naive. So I think it's, you know, yeah, we've, we've thought about this. The approach that we're taking is as follows. Um, and I think the answer for universities lies in being able to explain how they use money they make from commercializing um, technologies which address any crisis. Um, so it's this use of funds point, and to make the point that the funds that we make get plowed back into more teaching, more research, more opportunities, you know, greater impact, etc. Um, but if if I was running a TTO, I'd want an answer to that question. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It'll be interesting to see if someone does ask that question and and how the universities respond. So we'll staff to stay tuned for that one. Finally, um, Tom, you end your book with a letter to a vice chancellor. Can you tell our listeners the gist of the letter, why you thought it was important to include it in the book and what you hope people will take away from it? So this letter is, is written in the future um, and it's signed off by an optimist um, who's running a tech transfer office. And it's this optimist writing to their vice chancellor at the University of Nirvana, um, which gives you an idea of the sort of direction we're heading in here. <laughs> um, and it's it's the idea that the head of the TTO is thanking the vice chancellor for understanding everything that the TTO wants the university and the vice chancellor to adopt and engage in, in terms of uh, promoting and supporting uh, a great tech transfer program. So it's, you know, it's a thank you letter. Um, thank you for your understanding. Um, thank you for um, 
implementing and understanding the points that came out of the review that we had in 2020, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these points about um, recognizing it's not about the money primarily. It's about transferring technology. Yes, we'll make money where it's appropriate to do so, but that's not why we exist, et cetera. Um, and it finishes with a, a, a list of points that the vice chancellor may want to include in the speech she's giving at something called the Global University Forum um, in the coming weeks, which is you know key messages. So if you're talking to a, a, a room full or a screen full of um, university leaders, you know what are the messages for the university? What are the messages for the TTO? What are the messages for government? Um, and it's quite a nice summary, uh, I, I thought, of what a uh, leader of a tech transfer office, the sort of relationship they want with the leadership of the university and how they want to go about running their TTO. Yeah, I thought it was a really neat way to end the book. And I thought it, it, it really provided some important things to think about for the future. So very creative. Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for any of our listeners, I'd really encourage you to get a copy of Tom's book. It's full of detail and a lot of really useful information on tech transfer. Again, the title of the book is University Technology Transfer, What It Is and How to Do It. You can get it on Amazon. You can also get it at the Johns Hopkins University Press. You can find it in bookstores. Um, if you have any problems, I'm, I'm sure Tom would be happy to direct you to where you can get a copy. And in fact, Tom, uh, if any of our listeners do want to reach out to you and ask you questions about the book or where they can get a copy, where can they reach you? Sure, Lisa. I mean, I'd love to hear from from anyone on anything we've been talking about. Um, please send me an email. Um, my email address is tom at technologytransferinnovation.com. Um, and I'll just add that I think there's some jokes in the book as well. Um, it may be that I think there's more jokes than anyone else, but I try to lighten it up from time to time. As the poem with uh, the little piggy going to market clearly illustrates the, the play on that nursery rhyme, definitely illustrates that. So, well, great. Thanks so much again, Tom. It's really been wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.